Welcome to the Weekend University Podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organized lecture days, where attendees get a full day of talks from leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. If you'd be interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, you can sign up for the early access list at theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. This episode features a lecture on the evolution of consciousness from Dr. Mark Vernon. Mark is a writer, broadcaster, and psychotherapist with an interest in ancient philosophy. His work focuses on the skills and insights that can illuminate our inner lives. He contributes regularly to programs on the BBC, comments and reviews for the national press, as well as giving talks and leading workshops. Mark has degrees in physics and theology and a PhD in ancient Greek philosophy. He is a member of the teaching faculty at the School of Life and works as a psychotherapist in private practice and at the Maudsley Hospital. You can find out more about Mark's work on his website, www.markvernon.com. Enjoy the show. So what am I going to talk about? Um, it's more the evolution of self-consciousness over historical time. Um, and in fact, uh, what um, precipitates the, the, the sort of the beginning of what I'm going to try and uh, talk through and uh, give you a sort of felt sense of as much as anything, um, as well as throw light on our predicament today, um, is it begins at the, sort of the, the merger of historical time from prehistory. Um, it's very fascinating that this is idea of sort of prehistory and history, and normally it's talked about because of records um, that we just don't have, um, you know, independent as it were evidence or very much, say for whether the Trojan War really took place in the Iliad and Homer. Um, but it's also because something was beginning to shift about, say, two and a half thousand, three thousand years ago. Um, and even the notion of time, as we tend to think of it, was starting to emerge, where you could, as it were, count up the years and go back in a fairly linear state. Um, that, too, takes a kind of shift of consciousness for that to emerge. Um, even if you read the founder of, uh, of history, sometimes he said in the West, uh, Herodotus, um, he's quite good at counting the years sort of maybe five years ago, ten years ago, but the, the minute you get beyond that, it becomes rather vague, and it's almost like his mind is just beginning to get some sense of what it might be to count back the years. Um, so what I'm going to talk about now is more, say, the history of the evolution of self-consciousness, our experience of what it is to be human today, and how that has changed. If you're interested in sort of the broader um, areas here, um, this is related to what's sometimes known as the axial age. Um, the founding uh, figure here was the German philosopher Karl Jaspers, um, and there's quite a lot of good introductions uh, to the notion of the axial age. Broadly, the metaphor of axial there is that around and about two and a half thousand years ago, middle of the first century, first millennium BCE, um, it seemed that a lot of civilizations around the world shifted on their axis. Um, and you get uh, figures um, like, uh, say, Lao Tzu um, or um, Confucius um, in China. You get figures like the Buddha in India we've been hearing about. Um, you get uh, figures around the Mediterranean basin, uh, particularly focused on people like Socrates and then in the Hebrew tradition, the Hebrew prophets. And, and broadly speaking, the idea is that the Axial Age emerges um, when people start to pay much more attention to their inner life. And, you, you, get, you, get, you get replications all over the place, yes. 
Um, so, for example, in um, Indian philosophy, um, we were just hearing about the Vedanta uh, there, and the very early Vedantic texts are uh, much more interested in the out external world. Um, you know, the, 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 one of the famous discussions is that the horse ritual, which takes two years to perform, focuses on the king. I mean, it's very much about being in the environment. Um, and then uh, some of the later Upanishads, they start to focus on the interior life, and then the Buddha and the founder of Jainism as well. Um, so you get this movement uh, seems to be turned inwards. So what I'm going to say is, is quite related to that. Um, another uh, term which you can come across in more anthropological texts is this notion of participation, participation mystique, um, which is associated with uh, anthropology. And uh, it's broader the idea that um, when anthropologists look back, particularly beyond about two and a half thousand years, or maybe in indigenous cultures now, um, that have traditions and civilizations which haven't changed much, um, in time, um, there's a very different sense of what it is to participate um, in with others, with the natural world, with, with the gods, um, and uh, that, that you get a sort of sense of that in these anthropological studies. Um, a different take, but complementary again, um, uh, is uh, work by Robert Kagan, the Harvard psychologist, and he does very interesting work about how our consciousness evolves through the course of a lifetime, um, hence his book there, The Evolving Self. Um, but it matches very nicely onto um, the sense of how consciousness um, has evolved in a collective sense as well, and how we're part of a sort of unfolding now um, too. So it, it's related to these different aspects. Um, but the person I'm really going to pick up on um, is um, a chap called Owen Barfield, and his notion of how uh, our participation in life shifts. And by participation, he means um, our sense of what it is to be ourselves, to be with others, to be um, with nature, to be with God or the gods, to be with the cosmos. Um, uh, what is a, the sort of felt consciousness um, of, uh, of what it is to be human and how that has shifted? I've been very drawn to Barfield's ideas. Um, if uh, you haven't come across him before, um, he um, died in 1997 um, and was part of the group with the Inklings, um, he's sometimes known as the last inkling. Um, he himself, if you think, he was born in 1898, died in 1907. So he was born in the last years of Victoria's reign and died in the year that Tony Blair came to power. Um, he died just after Tony Blair came to power. So that's, that's quite a shift of consciousness in itself. Maybe that's why he got interested in this. Um, but he was one of the inklings um, alongside here. You can see, I hope, at the bottom there, um, Tolkien, then Barfield, um, then Charles Williams, and then on, on the right-hand side is C.S. Lewis. Um, this famous um, group of uh, literary figures, um, and others actually, Barfield spent a lot of his life working as a lawyer, in fact. Um, and both Tolkien and Lewis, the famous members of the Inkling, said that Barfield had all the best ideas. Um, and uh, that's why I got interested in Barfield. I thought, what, what were these good ideas? Um, and um, Barfield isn't such a good writer, certainly when it comes to you know, fantasy fiction, um, as both, both Tolkien and Lewis. But um, you can see, particularly, I think, how Tolkien actually used Barfield idea, ideas in his creation of The Lord of the Rings. Um, and to cut to the chase, um, the different uh, hominids that he creates in The Lord of the Rings, say the elves, the dwarves, and the humans, they experience life in very, very different ways. And this can be broadly mapped onto Barfield's ideas about the participation um, of life. Um, so, you know, the elves have a much more uh, kind of connected sense. There's not really clear distinctions between what's mortal and what's immortal, um, what's human and what's not human amongst the elves. Um, whereas the dwarves, um, you know, have a, they have a kind of fight with, um, with the material world, particularly in their caves and caverns, their miners. Um, so there's a different sort of experience of consciousness there. 
And then the humans feel they're on the, the emerge of some new time, something new uh, beginning to emerge. You know, the old times have gone to the West in the Lord of the Rings and something new is emerging. Um, so Tolkien uh, got a lot of his ideas, I think, uh, in that broad sort of conceptual sense from Barfield's ideas. Now, the way that Barfield got into it um, was thinking about words. Um, like others amongst the, the Inklings, he was a philologist. Um, he was very interested in, in how words change meaning over time. Um, and he had sort of two brilliant observations that helped him develop his ideas about the evolution of consciousness. Um, one was that words have soul. Um, so words aren't just signs or indicators, um, but they have um, a sort of felt side to them too. When we use words and we experience something, um, we don't just, as it were, take in information uh, like, say, a computer might do. Um, uh, we register words um, in the fullest possible sense. They sort of land in us and they can release a felt experience as much as tell us something, um, you know, a bit of data. Um, so they have a vitality. Um, and uh, Barfield got very interested in, in how words um, change um, their soulfulness um, over time. And in particular, he, he, he went with an observation which wasn't only his, actually. Quite a lot of people, particularly in the 19th century, made this observation. It's slightly fallen out of fashion now, but uh, quite a lot of people like uh, Jeremy Bentham, who worked just around the corner from here, um, he noticed this, that um, words um, originally um, have a kind of external meaning um, that now uh, can mean something interior from us, for us. So words... Um, Originally, as it were, seemed to have originated in the, in the external world, in the material world, and the world around us, and now um, carry meanings for us in, t in our interiors as well. Um, so um, some of the words uh, that you might think of, you, you can actually play this game, and both Bentham and Barfield concluded that all words originally have a sense in the external, exterior world um, that now has moved inward. So you take uh, you know, a word like right, and it's, it's what I'm speaking right um, this is a kind of interior, abstract notion. Is it correct, false, could you prove it, and so on. Um, but of course, it originally comes from the notion of being upright, standing upright. Um, and um, if I'm right today, then I'll sort of stand a bit more upright. Whereas if someone questions at the end, poses a question that demolishes my whole thesis, you'll see me shrink. Um, so, you know, right would be an example. Um, uh, if you're into Latin and Greek, you can play this game extensively. One, one of my favourite words is uh, the word supercilious. Um, which literally in the Latin means raising of the eyebrows. Um, and if someone, you know, you feel, feel someone's being supercilious, it's kind of quite exactly what you do. Um, so he noticed that words have um, these external meanings that become interior. And that was part of what got him onto um, the notion that words have soul. Um, and this means that words, therefore, are fossils of consciousness. Um, he argued that if you can trace the meaning of words back, um, then you can use them a bit like uh, um, uh, paleobiologists use fossils that are found in the ground um, uh, to track how the human body has and, and other bodies have, have evolved. So too you can do the same with words. Um, they can be treated as kind of fossils of consciousness and if you can trace them back um, then it will reveal something to you about how consciousness itself has evolved. Um, so one, again, just one example to give a feel for that um, would be um, say the word that which we use for wind um, so it's a bit of a stormy day outside. The word which we use for wind. Um, in Greek, it's pneuma. Um, in Hebrew, it's ruach. Um, you can play this game across quite a lot of uh, ancient languages. Um, and notice that it means also spirit 
in the ancient languages. So the Greek word pneuma means both spirit and wind. Um, and when you come to translate Greek, this is really quite a problem because nowadays we have to choose because we feel these two things are very different. Um, it's got to be it's either spirit or it's wind. Um, if you if you ever go to church and you hear John's gospel read, um, the spirit goes where it wills, and all this uh, we treat it now as a metaphor, wind for spirit in a, in a context like that. But the Greek word makes no distinction, and so broadly the idea would be that consciousness, when Hanuma was um, originally used, didn't make that distinction too. And that what was, there was a vitality in the external world which mirrored the vitality of the in, interior world, inner life. Um, so you get this a sort of much more porous sense of what it is to be human, um, whereas we have a much more boundaried sense. Um, we tend to, as it were, strip out the inner life of things. We more or less hold on to our own inner life, although it took quite a big dip in the middle of the 20th century behaviourism, um, one of which was vaguely touched on to earlier on. Um, but nonetheless, um, you have to work quite hard to persuade people nowadays, certainly in the scientific world, that nature, the cosmos, let alone gods, might have an inner life that we can relate to. Um, we separated out spirit from wind, and it happens in, in many, many other different ways. Heart is another good example. Um, you know, the word heart now um, means a sort of pump, um, but we still have enough of the metaphorical, inverted commas, uses of heart, you know, hard-hearted, warm-hearted, cold-hearted, um, to capture the, inner, the older sense, which was the heart as a seat of emotion um, as well. So Barfield really got onto all this and uh, spent many hours, I think, trawling through the Oxford English Dictionary, learning other languages, um, tracing it out. And what he came up with was a schema for the evolution of consciousness. And it takes place in three sort of broad steps. And the idea is that um, it both can be traced over time, um, over the last two and a half, three thousand years, um, but also um, is different positions of consciousness which we now know in ourselves as well, that we can have these different experiences of consciousness in our own individual lives. Um, you know, a bit like I have five fingers because a fish had five bones in its fin at some point, but I can use my five fingers in different ways. Um, so too, we um, have a sort of gathering of consciousness um, and um, can experience what would have um, unfolded over the last 3,000 years or so. So they're both stages and positions. Um, the original one he called, the first one he called original participation. So this is, you know, roughly before about 2,500 BCE. You read Homer. I'm going to, I'm, basically my talk, I'm going to look a lot at the different stages and, and hopefully give a, a good full sense of it. Um, but the first one is this original participation, and it's an immersive kind of consciousness where there's little or no distinction between the inner life of the cosmos and the inner life of the individual. Um, in fact, there isn't really a, a proper sense of the individual um, in this stage. Life was experienced much more collectively. Um, there wasn't much difference between what's me and not me, between subject and objective, um, between... Um, uh, say, mortals and immortals, um, between nature um, and um, an inner life. Um, it, there's a much more sense of living in a kind of flow of being, um, and your task in life is how to kind of navigate that flow, much more than discover your own inner essence. So that's original participation. Um, about two and a half thousand years ago, um, it starts to go through what Barfield called a withdrawal of participation. And this is a kind of ingathering of vitality and life. Um, which is why the axial figures started to focus inwardly um, and discover a kind of inner cosmos. Um, now, this has a great kind of advantage that the individual starts to develop, a much keener sense of you and choice and conscience. All these notions start to emerge about this time. Um, but presents a problem, too, which is how to connect back to life as it was. 
um, back to um, the, the flow of life around you. Um, so there's a kind of uncoupling from inner life of the cosmos, which intensifies the individual, but also leaves a sense of being alienated from the world around us. Um, and I think that's, broadly speaking, why these axial religions uh, uh, start get going, or Western philosophy. Um, in a way, they're, they're about um, dealing with the challenge of this newfound gap um, that's opened up because of the shifts of consciousness. Um, but if you can, as it were, work through that withdrawal um, without regressing back to the original immersive state, whereas it were you just sort of obliterate um, this in newfound individuality, um, then it's possible to gain what Barfield calls a sense of reciprocal participation, which is where um, what is known within is sort of reflected without, um, but in such a way that you still have a powerful sense of yourself within. Um, so this is a kind of mystical, perhaps, sense of things where there's a reconnection between the individual life and the, in, and the inner life of the cosmos, um, the consciousness of the whole world, as Barfield put it. So that's broadly his conceptual schema for this individual, his evolution of consciousness um, in the last 3,000 years or so. And you can sort of compare and contrast it with notions from the axial age, from John Keegan's um, notions, other notions. But broadly speaking, this sense of a withdrawal inwards and then the problem of how to reconnect um, is, 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 uh, under, takes place. Now, I wonder if it might be worth having um, a first little discussion about that um, with a neighbour just for five minutes, just to sort of give you a chance to put it into your own words, um, get a sort of sense of that yourself, whether it makes any sense at all to play with this. Um, a few thoughts on your own, as it were, self-consciousness. Do you um, know of this immersive, we might say, egoless state? Um, psychedelics were mentioned earlier on, and sometimes psychedelics uh, seem to uh, sustain a sense of ego on the trip, but at other times there is a kind of blast of the ego, kind of egolessness um, can emerge. And that might be akin to Barfield's original participation. Um, do you know of this alienated consciousness? Um, there was a, a famous self-help book that I read um, quite a while ago called Lost in the Cosmos, um, and uh, um, it's quite a theme of 20th century, 21st century writing, the sense of alienated um, but nonetheless, the advantage of being an individual, that you can make choices, that you have notions like free will, um, that there's a kind of a sense of your own purpose in life that can be gained. Um, so there's this sort of good side and bad side. Um, and then thirdly, this mystical sense um, where, as a way, you can dress others and address nature in an I-thou relationship, to recall Buber's expression. Um, uh, rather than the sort of blast of egolessness, there's a sense of conversational dialogue or exchange and between your inner life and the inner life of others, nature, um, gods, the gods, a reciprocal experience of participation. So have a little conversation for, with a with neighbour just for a couple of minutes, get a sense of, of this uh, in yourself, whether it broadly makes some sense. Part of the reason for just doing that at this stage is maybe just register in your mind now where you kind of feel you lie um, in these three different states, you might say, three different positions. Um, and I hope that what I'm going to say here on will help to sort of illuminate and deepen these different states and maybe even suggest ways that one can move between them um, because I think a, a life tends to go well when there's lots of potential for movement and fluidity rather than being stuck in one state or the other um, they're not uh, you know one's not good one's not bad they all have their kind of upsides and downsides and generally speaking I mean life if we can move uh, between different positions uh, that makes for a, a better life um, so take a little a sense of where you lie now um, and see how it feels when we come to the end. 
Um, I also actually meant to, to say at the start, I hope everyone's seen a copy of this handout. Um, this is sort of a, a set of resources, really, for my talk, rather than me going through it step by step. Um, so it's as much to take away and have a look at again afterwards. And I hope that, um, you know, there's a, almost like a sort of little revising. It might, it'll illuminate uh, why things are on the page. I will refer to some of it, but uh, um, it's as much to take away as a sort of set of resources. Okay, now, what I thought I'd do now is sort of tell this story of the evolution of consciousness, um, particularly as it unfolded around the Mediterranean. Um, so forgive me if I don't mention your favourite Indian philosopher. Um, it's you know, just a sort of a question of concision um, and uh, so to go into things enough depth in order to get a, a proper sense of it. Um, it's also uh, nice to do, actually. I went to the British Museum um, during the lunch break there and... Um, uh, you can walk around fantastic museums like the British Museum and treat it as a kind of little tour of ancient consciousness. Um, you know, you go into the Egyptian gallery there and you ask yourself, you know, um, what was this supposed to be conveying? What kind of mind uh, participated in life in this way? Um, and so if you want a bit of homework, I, I think it'll be shut by the time we're finished, but do go back to the British Museum sometime and, 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 and use it as a kind of trip um, of, of, of exploration of consciousness. And that's, in fact, where I'm going to start out, actually, with, with ancient Egypt. I think part of the reason why ancient Egypt keeps us in such thrall um, uh, is because um, it speaks so powerfully of this uh, position um, that Barfield calls original participation, um, when um, there's a, a profound sense of porousness between what's inside and outside, um, the div divisions between mortals and immortals um, don't exist, um, life is li lived broadly on the collective, um, and uh, the cosmos um, is in fully enchanted, um, and it draws us back almost like a kind of lost memory of how um, life can be experienced, I think. Um, so just to talk through these four images, um, you know, the, the early Egyptian civilization, um, certainly, you know, when it comes into the, the early dynasties, um, famously built pyramids. Um, and I think a pyramid so appealed because it reflected the nature of society. It was a pyramidal shape. Um, it's recently been uh, argued that the pyramids weren't built by slave labor. Um, it was actually quite a good job to have to participate in the building of pyramids. Um, and I guess it was sort of fulfilling um, in order, when you took part in the building of the pyramids um, because it spoke to your inner life as much as it being a job of work. Um, and it's very interesting now that quite often in psychology, the pyramid shape is used to map internal um, experience. So um, Abraham Maslow was mentioned earlier on and his famous uh, hierarchy of needs is often presented in a pyramidal shape um, with self-actualization, self-realization at the top of the pyramid. Um, I guess originally um, the pharaoh would have been at the top of the pyramid in an externalized version of that. Um, so pyramids are, are, are sort of part of this very different experience. Um, when you think of the effort that went into building pyramids, it's you know, totally extraordinary. Um, it must have come, as it were, from the bottom up in terms of, uh, of how life was experienced and lived. It wasn't just a kind of vanity project for the pharaoh. Um, uh, so I think that says something about how life was lived from the outside in at this time. Um, animal worship, um, the veneration of animals. Um, again, I think that this makes sense when you think of life not located inside, struggling to relate to the external world, um, but rather the other way around, that um, you felt yourself um, to be a kind of uh, collective of different spirited parts um, and the Horus eye, too, is, is a, it, uh, it relates there, that um, your eyes weren't felt to be primarily your own. Um, they were felt to be um, part of um, Horus um, in your own life. Um, and um, similarly with animals, that 
different animals could be associated with different moods, different feelings, different experiences. Um, so rather than, as it were, going and lying on the psychotherapist's couch and examining things inside, you would have gone to the temple that venerated the appropriate animal, made the right offerings, the right libations. Um, that, that's how, as it were, psychology was done, you might say, if you're imagining back. Um, so these things which are now quite strange to us, floating body parts, the veneration of animals, um, start to make sense if you think of life coming from the outside in and having to negotiate life by sharing in this vitality which was around and about you through religious rituals, be they collective or individual. Um, and magic, too, very much makes sense um, in this kind of world. That's the kind of little altar there. I think it's actually, if I remember rightly, is a figure of Horus again. And uh, you would have uh, poured water um, over that um, and maybe dipped some object in. Um, again, a sort of sense of vitality, energy coming from the outside in. Um, you could cast spells against your neighbours by getting a bit of their hair, sticking it into a wax dummy. Um, you know, this is how people experience life. So magic very much makes sense um, in this context. That feels, you know, a bit strange to us. Sort of appealing or frightening or hunkum, you know, depending on how you look at it. But nonetheless, um, something very different going on, I think. Um, you get the same um, experience of consciousness from the outside in in Homer as well. Another thing you might like to try when you go home is uh, just get a paragraph or two, particularly the Iliad. It starts to shift a bit in the Odyssey, but certainly in the Iliad, um, uh, where gods appear, miasmas come down. Um, this is a picture here of Achilles about to strike Agamemnon, um, but whereas we might sort of as well think better about trying to kill the king, um, it doesn't happen to Achilles. What happens is that Athena appears and literally pulls back his head. Um, that's the way that Homer describes it. So a very, very different experience of what it is to be human um, in that. Um, and Homer's fascinating, actually. It's, it, it's sometimes a bit lost in translations, but, um, for example, there's no word for the individual in Homer. Um, there is the word soma, which came to mean the kind of individual person or the individual body. Um, but in Homer, it means a corpse um, when the spirited entities had all left. Um, and uh, people have looked at this and come up with a proposal that there just wasn't really a sense of the individual um, in the way that we would think of it as a kind of identity gathered within. Um, soma just meant the kind of dead body. And then it gradually comes to mean um, the body of an individual who's alive. Um, and similarly, a lot of um, the physical organs associated with psychic functions in Homer too. So Achilles will be said to ponder these things in his lungs. Um, he talks about his, art, his heart easing with sorrow. That makes a bit more sense to us because the heart has sort of managed to capture, ca 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 uh, carry on with this sense of being a kind of emotional centre as well as a pump. Um, um, there were women um, in the Iliad who were called the belly talkers. Um, and... Uh, People are said to keep their counsel because the gods instructed them, um, a bit like Achilles there having his head pulled back by Athena. Um, so you get this in Greek culture as well as Egyptian culture too. Warfare is thought about in very different ways. Um, here's quite well in pictures of you're into the ancient Egyptians. Pharaoh in his chariot defeating his enemies, presumably the, the Nubians down there at the bottom. Um, and you might wonder, you know, why is Pharaoh uh, painted so, in such a, you know, so, so large size compared to the Nubians? Sometimes people said this is kind of like pharaonic rhetoric, a bit of propaganda, bolstering Pharaoh's position um, in society. Well, I think actually this is how it would have been experienced, um, that Pharaoh would have been a semi-divine figure. 
um, and um, he would have, um, be, have been experienced um, in such a way that the image represents. Um, it's not some sort of dubious propaganda to try and keep Pharaoh in power. Um, this is a representation of how things felt. And if you're into um, the Hebrew Bible again, um, there's quite a lot of the earliest bits of the Hebrew Bible um, reflect similar kind of ideas, um, that it's not just uh, we, as it were, fighting our enemies, but uh, our leader, um, nature, the gods themselves are fighting on our side. So, for example, in Judges 5, there's a description of um, the early Israelites going out to defeat another of the sort of hill tribes around ancient Palestine. Um, and it says, when you, Lord, went out from Seir, so when you, Lord, not when we went out, um, when we marched on the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. So you've got this sense that nature is quaking and shuddering, that other the mountains, not just the mountain of Sinai, which is associated with Yahweh, they're quaking before Yahweh and marching forth. And from the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera, the other tribe. The river Kishon swept them away, the age-old river, the river Kishon. March on my soul, be strong, in conjunction with this great kind of native outpouring. Similarly, in Homer, in the Iliad, um, Achilles has to fight um, river gods and things like that, as well as um, his, his, his human enemies. Um, so warfare is conceived in a very, very different way. And then another example, the afterlife, um, too. Uh, very, very different kind of experience. Broadly, the idea before about 2,500 years ago, maybe even a little more recently than that, is that um, there wasn't a great distinction between life and death. But what happened was that death was a kind of phase change where, on the whole, you as an individual in life, as far as you have been a person, um, you rejoin the ancestors and kind of fade away. Um, so um, people talk about being buried and gathered with the ancestors. Um, in indigenous cultures, you know, holy lands are very, very important for this because that's the place that the ancestors are. Um, and when you're buried in ancestral ground, um, you rejoin the ancestors. Um, this is a picture of Gustave Doré's um, depiction of the sticks, um, and you see all the poor souls kind of uh, disappearing into the water, unless um, they've got particular dispensation to, to ride across the sticks. Um, broadly speaking, in, in Greek time, it was thought that most people just fade out, they turn to shades, is the word, when they die, unless maybe they're heroes. Um, and the point about the hero is that they've raised themselves a little bit above mere mortals. They're a bit closer to the immortals. And so they might have time in the afterlife. Um, and in fact, um, again in Homer, um, when Patroclus dies, uh, Achilles' great friend uh, and sort of a compatriot, when, when, when Patroclus dies, Achilles is very worried um, that Patroclus will have just disappeared um, as a shade. And so he actually travels um, into Hades and discovers that um, Patroclus has, is indeed a shade. Um, he sees him gibbering away faintly, um, and it's one of the great sort of moments of sorrow in his life that he really will have to say goodbye to his, his beloved friend. Um, so the afterlife um, isn't, uh, uh, you know, kind of, it's, it's, it's a phase change, probably leading to a fading away, rejoining the ancestors. Um, you might say that you need to have quite a powerful sense of what it is to be an individual gathered into your own self to even have hope um, that you might have an afterlife. Um, that you might carry on in some particular way or other. Um, that just doesn't really exist at this time. So this starts to change. I, I see there's a couple of hands going up with questions. If you mind holding your questions to the end, just so I can sort of push on through, because I'm slightly conscious of the time. But do please pick things up later on. That'd be great. 
Um, this starts to change. About around the middle of the first millennium BCE, this is the argument. Uh, Barfield traced it in words originally. I'm going to try and tell it um, in slightly different ways. Um, and in particular, again, partly because the British Museum is so nearby, um, you can sort of walk through this change um, by looking particularly at figurative art and how figurative art changes. Um, there's a very nice description of this in Gombrich's uh, well-known book, The Story of Art, um, where he tells this story too. Um, but you can see how inner life starts to emerge in figurative sculpture. So before um, the 5th century BCE, um, figurative sculpture had been a very formulaic. In fact, the same proportions and dimensions existed in Greece um, as existed in ancient Egypt. Um, so this was uh, quite a, a, a widespread sacred geometry. Um, and these aren't individuals as we would think. This is a, a core, core on, the, on the left here and then a, a core on the right, uh, male and female uh, figures. And um, you can just ask yourself for a moment, you know, what kind of consciousness are these figures conveying? Um, they're not individuals. You know, this isn't Joe, who I knew down the street. Um, this is more like some sort of representation, and I suppose we would say archetype now, of a young man. Um, uh, it's sort of a, about manhood, perhaps. We know that these uh, Kuroi would have been, uh, many, many would have been in one room. Um, so uh, we might have had one that sort of in your, in your accommodation uh, to remind you, to invoke a sort of spirit of manliness, manhood. Um, that's what it was supposed to do. Um, and again, it's very much this sense of that coming from the outside in, captured um, in this sculpture. And similarly for the cause. But what starts to happen in really double-quick time, um, around 500 BCE, is that sculpture start, starts to change. Um, and um, these core and core, uh, and core figures start to develop a bit of individuality. Um, so what happens is that knees start to bend, come forward. Um, there's a bit of a gesture with an arm. Um, mouths start to have a bit of a smile. Um, and again, ask yourself, you know, what's happening in consciousness to start to produce these different sculptures? Um, they're beginning to have a bit of a sense of inner life, which presumably meant that the artist or the sculptor themselves started to get interested in um, the, uh, in the inner life of others, and maybe in their own inner life, uh, to appreciate the lives of others, the inner life of others, you have to have a sense of your own inner life, uh, what we would call empathy must start to emerge. Um, you have to have, as it were, a point of view, a perspective. Um, and um, it starts to, to, to come about around about 500 BC. Another um, great indicator of this is on pots, surviving pots. Um, this is the, the thing that Gombrich notes, actually, that um, before 500 BCE, um, there isn't a single pot um, that has foreshortening. Um, so feet, for example, are always done the Egyptian way, you know, kind of in profile. And then suddenly, about four, 500 BCE, um, a, a foot is presented in, in, uh, in foreshortens, just sort of five little circles, as it were, showing it almost coming out of the pot. Um, now, it's not difficult to do technically, um, but what was difficult was, I suppose, the emergence of the consciousness that would think, I want to portray an individual um, in an individual fight, say, an individual dynamic, not just a type of warrior, um, which is what would have happened before. Um, so um, this individuality starts to emerge um, until you come to you know, the tremendous golden age of Greek sculpture as we think of it now, um, where figures you know, just 50, 100 years later um, aren't just uh, um, defining standards of beauty, um, but are showing inner life um, in, in extraordinary depth you know, so the Discobolus um, here isn't just about um, a beautiful physique. Um, this is portraying 
um, extraordinary psychic pose as well. And the whole of the, um, the physical strength and also of the mental um, acti- uh, um, force, uh, strength of this individual is focused on um, um, the discus they're about to throw um, there. And then this is a sculpture slightly later, actually, but um, I saw it in the British Museum. Um, she's actually a Hellenistic Egyptian queen, Arsinoe, um, portrayed with this di- these diaphanous robes. Um, in a way, physically very, very beautiful, um, but also conveying her inner beauty, therefore. You know, this was a queen um, out to sort of impress um, with her presence, um, and a sculpture um, captures that too. Um, she was one person who would have stood before you, rather than being a queen who was semi-divine, um, and that was the source of her power and strength before. Um, so I hope you get some sense of how that changes, really, in, in, in double-quick time. Um, and... Uh, represents quite a dramatic shift of consciousness in Greece. And again, you can trace these, these changes, maybe slightly different times, um, but roughly around the middle of the first century BCE, first millennium BCE um, in different cultures. Now, what this poses is this question, this trouble. Um, how are we going to reconnect um, with um, inner life again, the inner life of the cosmos, now that we've gathered our own sense of individuality? And here I want to make the change to um, ancient philosophy, ancient Greek philosophy. Um, One of the things which the pre-Socratics and then those who follow Socrates here start to do is ask this little question, why? Um, And the point about asking the question, why, um, is that you don't just have the experience, um, but you ask yourself about the experience. And again, we ask why all day, every day. Certainly if you've got kids, you know, they can ask why incessantly and it becomes very, very annoying. Um, But I... It takes a massive change of consciousness to ask this question why. So it starts to emerge, particularly in the pre-Socratics. We can actually do a little experiment right now, um, which uh, one of the pre-Socratics calls, uh, called Examinees did. Um, and he blew on his hand, and he blew on his hand in two different ways, which you might like to try. He blew on his hand with his mouth open, kind of like that, and then with his lips pursed, like that. So mouth open, and then lips pursed, like that. And he noticed something, if anyone would like to... Temperature difference, yeah. So when you've got your mouth open, it's hot, um, warm at least. When you've got your mouth pur- lips pursed, it's cold. Um, now, presumably this was an experience that, directly or not, countless people had had before. Um, but an examinee thinks to ask why. Um, he both has the experience, but as a worry in his mind, takes a step back um, and asks about the experience too. He's not just immersed in the experience. Um, he's got enough sense of his, himself um, in order to, um, uh, to think about the experience as well. You might say that his inner life is triangulated. And actually, sometimes in mindfulness, this, this, it's taught in this way, I've, I've heard, um, that there's not just you and the experience, but there's the third position where you're able to stand back from the experience and think about it. Um, and this is what Annex Amenis did. Um, it's now... The phenomena is now very, very widespread in our technological culture. It's basically uh, the, uh, the science of refrigeration, um, that when hot air expands, it cools. Um, so when you have your mouth open, there's broadly the same pressure inside as out, so it stays at body temperature and feels warm. But when you have your lips pursed, um, it's higher pressure in, lower pressure out, and the air cools um, as a result. So there's aircon in this room. I was wondering if there was earlier on, but if there is aircon in this room, um, then that's what it's doing. Um, now, Anxiamines isn't remembered as the, as the discovery of a, you know, a great kind of technology. Um, Boyle's law is called now after um, the 18th century scientist Boyle. Um, he was remembered for this shift of consciousness. So it's one of the reasons why he's the pre-Socratic. Um, that was far more significant at the time um, than the, the pure technology. It takes another shift of consciousness to think about turning these things into widespread technologies, which is what we'll come to later. 
And I think what happened is that a lot of um, these shifts kind of constellated or come together in the figure of Socrates, which is why he now feels like a kind of turning point figure for us. Whenever you tell this story, you tell the story of Socrates. I don't know how many people have heard of Examinees before, but you certainly have heard of, of Socrates. And then Plato writes about Socrates in order to um, give a sense of the encounter, I think primarily the encounter with this figure of Socrates, who seemed to bring together this new consciousness for people and enable them to make something of it themselves. Um, you know, a lot of people didn't like it. He was regarded with great suspicion. If you know anything about Socrates as well, you'll know that he was killed in 399 BC and voted down by the democracy. Um, democracy always has a tend to, uh, to drift back to original participation, mob rule and all that. Um, and it certainly happened in ancient Athens. Um, and Socrates was the victim of that at the end of his life. Um, but if you could tolerate um, this sense of stepping back, this asking question why, um, enough of the, um, the experience of having this gap um, then Socrates seemed to offer a whole new experience of what it was to be human. And subsequent philosophy used Socrates in order to try and understand that. So here's a little comment from Plato that I put up, which uh, Socrates um, said that he said about himself. Um, he said, I have a divine or spiritual sign. This began when I was a child. It's a voice, and whenever it speaks, it turns me away from something I'm about to do, but it never encourages me to do anything. This is what has prevented me from being part in public affairs, and I think it was quite right to prevent me. Now, this just isn't Plato, as it were, reporting what Socrates might have said. Um, as it were, Plato was a bit like Shakespeare. Every single word that he uttered or wrote down um, carried quite a lot of significance. And, and this little phrase, in a way, carries you through um, the Socratic therapy, you might say. So he has a divine or spiritual sign. Um, so what he's saying there is, I don't just go along with the collective gods of the city, Athena, particularly in Athens. Um, but I have a divine or spiritual sign that I communicate with directly. Um, it was Apollo in Socrates' case. Um, he was said to have, uh, his friend was said to have gone to the Delphic Oracle um, and to have had, uh, received the blessing of Apollo. Um, and so Socrates, as it were, used that inner sign um, as his sort of steer in life rather than the collective signs of the Athenian state. One of the reasons why people became suspicious of him, it was you know, pretty much a treasonous offence to say, I have a divine or spiritual sign. This began when I was a child. Another very interesting comment, especially if you're a psychotherapist, um, it's just about this time that the first intimations that our own development might matter um, in terms of how we experience life, not just um, the city-state or the collective's development, um, that there's something going on in our own development um, that shapes who we are. And if we can pay attention to that, um, then this will uh, develop our consciousness, expand life in some way. Um, it's a voice. Whenever it speaks, it turns me away from something I'm about to do, never encourages me to do anything. Now, this is a, sometimes known as the negative way um, in Christian theology. It's called apophaticism. Um, and again, it's quite common um, in the spiritual traditions, the wisdom traditions that, about, uh, that merge around this time. Um, and the point is that you're not being operated like a puppet anymore. Um, you know, when Athena appeared and pulled back Achilles' head before he was about to strike Agamemnon. Um, Achilles was sort of being treated a bit like a puppet. Um, he was just moving according to his fate, you might say. Um, now, Socrates is saying, no, 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 this new way of experience lives me in, in a place of doubt or uncertainty. And it's in tolerating that doubt and uncertainty that I have to, as it were, come to something in conjunction with what's happening around me. I have to learn to relate to what's going on in the external world from within my own sense of self, my own resources. Um, and 
personality develops, individuality develops, um, the sense of um, beginning to reform a reciprocal participation. Um, if you can go through this period of uncertainty and doubt, um, you know, if you ever know anything about Sufism, you'll know that bewilderment um, is a massive part of the spiritual process, and I think that's something about this. Um, and there'll be other um, uh, comparable uh, experiences which are part of different wisdom traditions. Um, and he says, this has prevented me taking part in public affairs and was quite right to prevent me. So he's not just going along with the crowd, um, which um, the ancient uh, Athenian democracy, which you, know, you probably know was a very, very um, participative experience. Um, he's trying to gather um, some sense of himself within um, and then work out how to act within the city, um, what um, he can uh, offer the city-state from within himself uh, rather than from preserving the ancient traditions and so on. Um, Plato develops it. He says, you know, if you have a well-developed consciousness of yourself, then you'll have no need of the charms of Abaris the Hyperborean. So Abaris the Hyperborean was, is sometimes called a shamanic figure. Um, this was from original participation, uh, where the shaman, um, as it were, would uh, go on a sort of uh, a spiritual journey and be able to guide you on your spiritual journey. Um, very, very different uh, spiritual undertaking from having an engathered against yourself. So Plato is saying that if you have a well-developed your sense of consciousness of yourself, as I'm putting forward now, um, then you have no need of these old charms. Um, this is a bit of a side issue, but I think probably what happened with Plato was that um, when Socrates died, um, Plato was still quite young. He was in his mid-twenties, um, and he was sort of left with his own inner struggle. What was he going to do with this experience of having met this figure, Socrates, that he was sure changed everything? And I think that actually he, he travelled around a bit, probably went to Egypt, and uh, maybe even uh, took part in some of the old initiation rites, and realised they weren't going to do the trick for this new consciousness. And here he's having a go at uh, the Hyperboreans, who are probably around the Black Sea. Maybe he went up there as well. Um, but it is difficult. Um, here's um, another bit of Plato where he records um, one of Plato's uh, disciples, Asibirdes, and what it was like to know Socrates. Um, he says, um, Socrates makes me confess that I ought not to live as I do, neglecting the wants of my own soul and busying myself with the concerns of the Athenians. Therefore, I hold my ears and tear myself away from him. Alcibiades was a great general in the um, Peloponnesian War. Um, so he was very, very drawn to his own hero heroic status in the Peloponnesian War. And Socrates said, no, no, wait a minute. You know, maybe you're not caring for your own soul um, by seeking your own glory. Um, he's the only person who's ever made me ashamed Experiences like shame start to come in at this time. Conscience. Euripides, who was a contemporary of Socrates, the playwright Euripides, he starts writing about conscience. Whereas only 100 years before, say in Aeschylus, um, there wasn't the individual who experienced consciousness. There was rather pollution came down on the whole city. It was a collective experience. And people were punished to the third and fourth generation. Now you have a sense of shame, guilt, conscience, and it's the individual um, who's got to grapple with this. Um, which you might think... Um, not to be in my nature, and there's no one else who does the same. Many a time I wish that he were dead, and yet I know that I should be much more sorry than glad if he were to die, so that I'm on my wit's end. He's been thrown into this state of bewilderment, not knowing, so much so that he can have hateful feelings um, against Socrates, and yet somehow at the same time knows that Socrates somehow has the key to a better life for himself. Um, in parenthesis, it seems that he probably didn't achieve that betterment. Um, he died in ignoble circumstances and was hated by the Athenians. And in fact, at Socrates' trial, it seems that Alcibiades was cited as counter-evidence for this new way. But nonetheless, if you take the point, this is a, a sort of personal struggle. 
And that's the kind of thing that starts to emerge at this time. You can look at words um, um, at the time as well, particularly in Platonic philosophy. And um, there's plays on words like quality and quantity. Um, in fact, quantity didn't exist in Plato's time. It's actually Aristotelian coinage just a few decades later. Um, but it captures the shift of consciousness that rather than life being experienced as a sort of felt level where qualities matter, um, it starts to be experienced where you can quantify things. Um, that requires this stepping back so you can, as it were, get a sense of the objective as opposed to the subjective. Um, so number quality becomes number quantity. So rather than thinking about one as sort of unity one, for Plato, he still thinks about it mostly about oneness. And what does it be to be whole, round, gathered, a sort of unity, that quality sense. Um, there's a nice little moment in one of Plato's dialogues where Socrates is watching the rainfall, good little meditation for today, um, and he notices two raindrops joining and forming one raindrop. And he doesn't immediately go in his mind to like, oh, you know, what's the volume of the one raindrop is at the sum of the two? Um, a more quantitative kind of um, ex uh, exercise. He asks, what happened to the two-ness um, when it became one? Um, two-ness is a very different, a sort of dyadic notion. Um, two-ness struggles to relate. Um, oneness is whole. And what's happened to that qualitative experience? Similarly, um, a lot of Plato's writing uses what is now known as proof by analogy. If you can get a felt sense of things in one part of life, then maybe that helps you get a felt sense of things in another part of life. Um, a lot of philosophers now um, think what a useless proof, because they tend to think about it in terms of analysis. Um, that things like logic, analysis, again, Aristotelian coinages, um, they start to emerge at this time. Um, theory didn't mean a kind of neatly, tightly defined proposal that you then go out and find evidence for, put to the test. Theoria meant a kind of journey you went on that would change your perspective. Um, and one of Plato's best-known theorias um, is um, the myth of a cave, where he imagines how life is like being strapped to the back of the cave, um, but for a process of uh, steps and change and struggle, as it were, um, the rare individual escapes from the cave and realises that life is wholly different from what they, what they thought before. That's a theory in Plato. Um, it's not um, like Newton's theories of motion or something. Very different idea. So many speculation wasn't about having a punt on an idea. It's like spectacles. It's you know, having a good look. Um, looking directly, direct knowledge. And reason, too. I partly put this up because if you ever read a bit of Plato, you've got to unthink a lot of what you take these words to mean in order to really get his sense. You know, reason doesn't mean uh, logic, rational, dry, abstract, objective proof that, you know, anyone um, could see were right um, if only they'd gone through the same logical, logical steps. Um, reason is much more linked to the Latin ratio. It's more about harmony and resonance. And the ancient Greek philosophers felt that you've got to work on yourself in order to perceive life. You've got to, have, you've got to be you know, kind of in harmony or resonance with the world around you in order to then have a sense of knowledge. Um, and uh, the, the wise sage was someone who was in tune with things rather than someone who knew lots of good logical arguments. Um, word shifting consciousness at this time. And so you get this great sort of splurge of philosophy in the post-Socratic age. Here's Raphael's famous school of Athens with Plato and Aristotle in the middle and other gathered philosophers round and about. Um, as they all um, embark um, on this new consciousness um, constellated for them by um, the figure of Socrates and the Stoics, the Epicureans, the Skeptics, the Cynics, and they all, what they broadly do, I think, is take um, a different sort of entry point and the Stoics felt that the emotional flux was the way to get into this. The Epicureans thought, no, no, we're pleasure-loving, uh, pain-avoiding creatures. That's what we must do to get involved in, in this new consciousness. Skeptics thought, no, 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 it's about 
wanting to know what's going on and can you tolerate the unknown, the cynics broadly thought, no, it's human conventions that uh, keep us trapped in an old consciousness and we must give up things like clothing and money and housing and then we'll step into a new consciousness and a different sense of ourselves can emerge. Um, Stoicism, particularly important for the foundation of CBT, incidentally, um, relating back uh, earlier on, the, the founders of CBT were self-conscious modern-day Stoics, but interestingly, what they did was sort of strip out the end point um, of the ancient Stoics, because the ancient Stoics, along with all the philosophy schools, I would argue, um, felt that what happens is that if you gain a sense of yourself um, in relation to the hubbub of the everyday, can do this sort of stepping back, be mindful of yourself in the broadest possible sense, um, then it's not just has therapeutic advantage, um, because uh, you don't just get swept along by the ups and downs, by the collective, by the masses, by anxieties and so on. Although it does have that therapeutic advantage. But it opens you up to a whole new experience of life as well that you had no awareness of at all because you were so absorbed in what was immediate. Um, and so for the Stoics, um, they argued that it opens you up to a deeper pulse of life, which they called the Logos, a kind of divine um, sense of things. Um, and the Stoics, the Stoics sage, try to align themselves more and more with the Logos rather than with their own immediate flux. Um, that was their sort of deepest promise. Um, and you might ask, you know, what happens when we kind of strip out that deeper pulse of things now and just try and keep going um, on our own volition, our own... Uh, um, abilities rather than, uh, as it were, trusting that there might be something else we can rest in. Rest is a big mindful word, and um, as someone who's quite persuaded by these more theistic arguments, um, I sometimes want to ask mindfulness practitioners, what are you resting in? Um, just your own observation, or is there something deeper? Um, just to raise some of the questions, really right, right back to what was being said earlier, earlier on. So that's something about um, ancient philosophy. Um, before we just go for a break for five minutes, um, this gets picked up in the Christian period. Um, I think that essentially what Christianity manages to do um, is to um, develop these, this new experience of consciousness for the masses. Um, ancient philosophy was always a bit of an elite activity, um, but I think it had more of an impact than perhaps sometimes is thought. But nonetheless, Christianity managed to take them and uh, develop them uh, for the masses. Here's a very early picture of Christ um, from Hinton St. Mary, a villa here in England. Um, I rather like it because it's a beardless Christ um, before um, Christ takes on the appearance of the emperor, um, but rather looks like Apollo. Um, and um, Apollo was a very interesting god at this time, I think, because... In the Greek, it means the not many, um, apolos, not hoipoloi, but apoloi. Um, and um, this gathered sense of individuality seemed to give quite a boost to Apollo. Um, as it were, you start to appreciate the unity of the divine if you have a unity yourself within. Um, if you don't have a sense of unity within, then how can you appreciate the unity of the divine? So in original participation, pantheism dominates, but it's about this time that monotheism starts to emerge, certainly um, around the Mediterranean, and Christ depicted as Apollo um, it is an indicator of that. Um, and you know, to cut a story short, it develops into medieval mysticism. Here's a picture of Hildegard of Bingen's drawing. I hope you can just see Hildegard here. Um, and she's, as it were, looking onto the whole cosmos and seeing that the human mind can traverse um, the whole cosmos um, and relates rather nicely to the divine mind that embraces it all. Um, so this was broadly the kind of Christian promise, um, again, reflected in other traditions, but broadly the Christian promise is that the individual has the freedom to know of the divine. Um, you don't have to, as it were, rely um, on the old traditions, the old rituals, the old libations, um, but you yourself can have this mystical experience. Um, it's a newfound freedom. Notions like free will 
start to take off in the early Christian period. They don't exist before. Um, now we assume that it's a key part of what it is to be human to have free will. Um, and when people challenge it, like these new neuroscientists, we get up in arms and say, but that doesn't make any sense. Um, had the neuroscientists been around about 3000 BC, they would have gone, well, what's the news? No one's got free will. Um, but now it really matters to us because of, of this. Um, writers like Meister Eichhardt can say, my eye and God's eye is one eye and one sight, one knowledge and one love. And just to give just a quick nod um, to other traditions, um, about this time, um, say the Bhagavad Gita um, uh, starts to uh, um, emerge, and then it's, it's a bit earlier, but then the commentaries, which are so crucial for Vedantic ideas now, um, are about this time. Um, and early on in the Bhagavad Gita, you can read phrases like this, which are repeated time and time and time again. Only the material body is perishable, the embodied soul within... Um, is indestructible, immeasurable, and eternal. And that is the, the sort of the goal to know of life from that dimension, not just be stuck with the material body. And I think you can even make leaps into Chinese philosophy as well. Um, a bit more cautious here. Um, there's definitely a lot of traffic between Mediterranean philosophy and Indian philosophy. Um, I think Chinese, it's all worth remembering that it, it's probably got very different ideas too, but nonetheless there are parallels. And Schwanza, um, who's a kind of later Taoist figure, um, in his book, he writes, what I care about is the way which goes beyond skill. Perception and understanding have come to a stop and spirit moves where it wants. Um, so what he's saying there is that I know about the Tao, the way, um, not because I've got the right formulas, the right skills, um, the old magic spells, for example, um, but it's about perception and understanding that then I can let go of um, because I've become aligned to the way and it just happens, as it were, by itself, this famous uh, Taoist notion of Wu Wei. Um, it's about the individual who has become aligned to, to the Tao, to the deeper pulse. Um, I think there are a lot of parallels um, that you can draw there as well. And so we come to our sense of ourself before the modern period. Um, here's some Renaissance pictures, um, you know, where there's, uh, they're so appealing to us, I think, um, because of the depth, the interiority of figures like the Mona Lisa. And then I particularly like this figure, this painted by Gerondio, um, of the old man looking at his grandson. Um, and you'll, you'll sort of see a complete consciousness represented here, because they're definitely individuals. You know, the Mona Lisa with a famously enigmatic smile. She's definitely an individual, and it's a way you can dive into her interiority, wondering what on earth's going on for her. Um, but they're set against, um, in the Renaissance way, these backgrounds. This is the whole world somehow at play here too, you know, with winding roads, again, winding roads, hills that represent sort of depth of perspective as well as the immediate. And I think the Renaissance so appeals to us because it was a time when original participation, uh, individual consciousness, a bit of alienation here going on, um, but also a reciprocal sense of what it was to be human is felt in the picture too. And they were a gathering um, that came to its peak um, in the medieval and then Renaissance periods. Um, there was a withdrawal in the modern period, which is our challenge now. But maybe we'll have a five-minute break. What he argued is that um, about 500 years ago, beginning of the 16th century, um, uh, certainly in the West, um, there was another big withdrawal of participation. Um, various uh, things unfolded in about... 100 years or so from about 1500s onwards um, that, that led to a big withdrawal of participation, arguably even more so perhaps than the withdrawal of participation in the middle of the first millennium BCE. Um, and again, just to say from the top, you know, this has advantages and disadvantages. It's not like one's good and one's bad. Um, this is a, he's very much a cyclical sense of things, I think, with Barfield, rather than a linear 
um, progression of consciousness. Um, but there's, there's trials and tribulations as well as uh, newfound blessings and perceptions. So three things broadly happened, I think, about 500 years ago um, in the West. First of all is the Copernican Revolution. Um, Copernicus publishes his final treatise um, on the revolution of the spheres in 1543. Um, he'd had the ideas a little bit before, pushing back to the beginning of the 16th century. But nonetheless, um, broadly speaking, before um, the 16th century, this was the presumed kind of cosmology, that we were immersed in the cosmos. We, were, we had enough individuality to be able to explore the celestial spheres from our own domain, domain of the Earth. Um, it was felt to be alive. This is the Potomac universe, which was very much picked up in the Christian period as well. Um, you know, the sun as uh, divine. Or Plato just refined it slightly. He said that the sun is the child of the good. Um, so there is a kind of unity of good beyond the sun, um, and the sun's a mirror of that, much as our soul can be a mirror of the divine too. But nonetheless, this very sort of immersive sense of things um, which, uh, uh, which uh, undergo. Um, astrology is one of the big sort of things that comes out of this period. Astrology, as we really know it, and picks up in the Hellenistic time. Uh, oracle um, uh, Horoscopes start to, be start to be cast for individuals about this time. There are horoscopes before, but they're always rather collective things about the seasons, about the life of the king. Um, so astrology very much makes sense um, in, the, in this, this worldview. And then it changes. And the, the thing I hope you, know, you can see from the imagery there is that the human figures aren't in the middle of it. They're sat outside... Um, gazing on. Um, this is this sort of disconnection, this withdrawal um, that reveals new knowledge. Um, there is a huge advantage to it. Um, it reveals new knowledge, but nonetheless, very starkly presented there is the struggle of how to get back into the cosmos. Um, sort of that picture on the right there kind of suggests that you can't really. Um, you just got to kind of gaze on and uh, be alienated from what before had been thought of as aspects of the divine um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the planets and so on. Um, so the Copernican Revolution definitely has a big impact, the birth of modern science. Um, individuals like Francis Bacon and then Descartes too, they, they really develop this, they really run with this. Uh, Francis Bacon separates quality from quantity. Um, he starts talking about laws of nature, um, a very quantitative kind of notion, whereas in Plato he talked about ideas, much more qualitative um, you know, the good is an idea um, that tends to cause things to move in a certain direction to which we have attractions. Um, Francis Bacon says, no, 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 it's laws. Um, if you hit this, that happens. That kind of idea starts to emerge um, in modern science. And then Descartes um, famously separates um, the mental from the material. Um, that's one of his things. But also, he develops ways of um, investigating space, which before had been enchanted. They'd been, you might say, places um, with character, with uh, living... Uh, uh, divinities and consciousnesses and so on. Um, he develops a way of treating um, the world and, and, and the cosmos as a space. Um, this is his famous um, X, Y, and Z, which you learn about at school. Probably the more significant of his inventions, actually, than even than I think. Therefore, I am um, is the uh, the way of investigating space, which disenchants place. Um, so that's 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 to say something about that. Um, Around about the same time, we've just kept remembered here Martin Luther's 95 Theses um, earlier this year, um, and then that's John Calvin, his slightly younger, um, uh, 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 sort of who took up the, the Reformation challenge. Um, they do things like um, they become very, very anxious about allegorical readings of the Bible and nature. Um, before it had been quite standard in the medieval world to read the Bible, to read nature um, as uh, not just something that happens, as it were, in the natural world, but as allegories of God's working, allegories of your own inner life. Um, and both Luther and Calvin um, 
talk of their struggles to throw off what they now call idolatry. Um, and um, the other thing that happens is that they become very wary of their inner life. Uh, Martin Luther seems to have been quite a troubled character um, and was very wary of his inner life. He thought he couldn't trust it. He couldn't even trust his free will anymore. Um, he thought, how do I know I'm not possessed by a devil um, when I think what I'm using is uh, my free will? And then John Calvin, uh, one of his famous remarks is that um, we're utterly depraved in our inner life. It's completely untrustworthy. So you need a new source of authority um, and um, it's scripture that they turn to. Uh, it was a good time to turn to scripture because in the Renaissance, um, the, the humanities had been emerging, um, which were getting very interested in philology, words, history of texts, and so on. So there was, as were, a new body of knowledge to turn to to seek some kind of authority. Um, about this time, a bit like I think we try and seek new forms of authority in neuroscience. Um, they did the same there with scripture. Um, but there was this sort of deep conundrum in the heart of the Reformation, which was that um, you needed to turn to scripture, but you've got to interpret scripture. You can't trust the church, you can't trust the collective to do that interpretation for you. Um, you've got to trust the individual, and yet you're also distrusting the individual, your own sense of things, because we're utterly depraved inside. And I think this is why Protestantism tends to have this uh, fragmentatory kind of quality. It's great for the individual, um, but, never, but it always struggles to hold itself together. It tends to fragment. You know, whereas Roman Catholicism, which um, is more rooted in medieval the medieval world, um, there can be a lot of debate, as we were hearing on the news this morning, I'm in the Roman Catholic Church, and yet somehow there's a sense of belonging still being a Catholic in Ireland, for example, in spite of all that's happened. Um, Protestant churches would just divide um, as they sort of struggle to, 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 to locate a, a sense of authority. So that's the Reformation, the third thing. And then uh, the second thing, and then the third thing um, is the Enlightenment, the modern Enlightenment. Here's Immanuel Kant, um, and Immanuel Kant's Fairly difficult to read, except one little bit of Kant, which is quite readable, which was an article he wrote for a newspaper called What is Enlightenment? Um, and he summarises it here. He says, Enlightenment is released from self-imposed immaturity. Immaturity is an inability to make use of understanding without the guidance of another. Sarperi day, have courage to use your own reason. Um, so this is the withdrawal again. Trust your own individuality. Don't rely on the guidance of another. Turn inwards. Um, have courage to know as it's also translated sometimes. So these three things sort of mark the beginning of our own um, intensified individuality, our own sense of, of, of consciousness, and present us with the struggle of how we connect, how we reconnect again. Now, there are good sides and bad sides. Um, here's some of the good sides, um, just captured in three images. Technology is one, obviously. Um, uh, it's only when you have a really powerful sense that you can step outside the natural world and do with it as you will um, that technology really takes off. Um, a lot of technologies like steam engines did actually exist in the ancient world, um, but they were seen um, as telling you something about the qualitative side of nature, um, and you, you would as well have contemplated a, a steam engine. Um, there wouldn't have been anyone who wanted to patent it and turn it into turbines like these. Um, so that gets going, I think, um, about this time. Um, another huge advantage reflected in this room, as well as the picture of Mary Beard on the wall here, um, is that women as well as men, um, start to be able to move up and down society to gain educations much, much more than um, in the medieval world. Not, not completely so. We, I mentioned Hildegarde Bingen earlier on. Um, but um, now we, you know, we take it for advantage. Uh, we take it um, as an assumption, um, uh, even if it's difficult to put into practice, um, that the individual really counts. Um, and so differences, you know, like men and women, shouldn't, shouldn't uh, be bars in any way. Um, and then there's the famous double helix, um, that we can even look inside ourselves um, and discover um, the genome 
um, again, a sort of bit of technology, you might say biological technology. Um, and so it's now become very common to talk about my genes do this, I'm programmed for that, a bit like the amygdala, amygdala's are firing, as we were hearing earlier on. Um, quite what happens to the person when you think you're just a sort of, as it were, a lumbering robot, to use Richard Dawkins' phrase, um, is a moot point. Um, but these are definite advantages. Medical science is definitely an advantage. I'd rather have a toothache now than I would have had in 1503. So. But here's the alienation. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, the problems of uh, um, existential angst. Um, we've talk we talked a little bit about mental health earlier on, anxiety, depression, um, uh, even the, the individual completely breaking down in psychosis, that would be one way of understanding psychosis, um, that as it were, the individual breaks down and there's a flood of the outside in, so that the individual suffering from schizophrenia can't tell the difference between what's inside and outside. Um, and there's no um, uh, uh, cultural memory or aids, as it were, around and about to be able to negotiate that. Everyone else has a keen sense of their individuality. And you, as the schizophrenic or the psychotic person, are saying, I don't experience life like that at all. And it's you know, immensely distressing um, and, and very difficult. Um, ecological disaster, I, 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 you know, I'm not proposing mindfulness and how to solve the ecological crisis, but nonetheless, I think that part of the, what we are wrestling with in some deeper sense, as well as the more immediate concerns, is um, we've lost a felt sense of our connection with nature. So, you know, in a way, it doesn't really matter to us um, that uh, um, global warming is breaking up the ice caps and so on. Uh, we still go out and do all the things which have contributed to this. We, it's not just a moral question, I think, and that we really need to regain a sense of, but a felt sense of participating with these things. You know, and then, as it were, we would know, um, we would really, from the soul upwards, would have a felt sense of what a good life was, um, and it doesn't involve destroying um, the natural world. And then I put the picture, Casper's um, uh, picture there of the wanderer, um, partly put there because it appears on the front cover of one of my books of Nietzsche, um, who famously declared that God is dead. Um, and so you have the great crisis of, um, of uh, theism in the West, um, that God is dead. Um, and as you know, if you've read Nietzsche, this wasn't a great sort of triumphant declaration of him. He thought it was going to be the great test um, of the centuries to come, because when God is dead, um, we're left alone in empty space, and we don't know where we are anymore. It seems like the sun's become unhinged from its bearings. We just experience darkness, um, and we can't, as it were, penetrate the clouds. Um, so this is the great challenge of, of modern alienation. So what are we going to do about it? Um, there's many things, and the sheets of paper um, has some suggestions. You'll not think of others um, than just what I'm going to suggest now, but I thought I'd at least try and talk in the time I've got left about psychotherapy a little bit. Because I think psychotherapy has arisen in the time it has, um, largely in response to this crisis. Um, Carl Jung certainly uh, explicitly argued that, um, that um, particularly Christianity in the West, as he knew it, in Protestant Germany and Switzerland, um, had um, uh, ceased to work for people psychically. Um, and so psychotherapy is a kind of new way of trying to, to deal with that. And, and the tra different traditions um, have contributed different things, I think, um, in the hundred years or so since Freud, in a way, kind of launched it all. Um, I work as a psychotherapist now. Um, we don't really use many Freudian ideas now. British psychotherapy, all sorts of things have happened since. Um, I'm glad that we had a talk this morning saying that Freud got some things right, because it's quite common to say, you know, silly old Freud got it all wrong. Um, and that's doubly frustrating for me, because I don't think he got it all wrong, but also we don't, you know, lots happened since as well. The thing about Freud is he was such a tremendous writer, um, and uh, 
He's so easy to kind of quote and pick up on. But nonetheless, um, Freud's broad answer to this question of alienation was the constellation of illusions. Um, he broadly argued um, that what we do is project our inner anxieties um, onto the world around us and try and befriend them thereby. You know, so he would say it's no coincidence that in Judaism he was a Jew and in Christianity God is often conceived of as a father because when we were young um, we experienced life um, as in a way rather controlled by our fathers. Um, they um, had to provide the kind of security um, in which we could trust life um, but they also um, could turn on us at times and discipline us um, in order to help us to live civilly um, in the modern world. Um, so, um, you know, the internalised father becomes um, the superego um, for Freud. Um, and this creates a great, a great tension inside, you know, is this father figure good or bad? Um, can we trust them or are they going to punish us? Um, and one of the common ways that we use, um, Freud argued, to handle this inner anxiety um, is to project, um, make the father a god. Um, and the advantage that this has is that we can both... Um, tell stories about um, his ultimate beneficence, um, that ultimately he wills um, the good of us, um, um, but also um, we can have a struggle with God um, about the things that are difficult um, and we don't like as well. Um, so it's a kind of adult version of an infantile state, um, you might say. Um, so the constellation of illusions. And you know, he wasn't wholly wrong in this. Um, projection is a very powerful human mechanism and we do tend to project our inner life onto the outside world. Um, and it's quite common uh, to read texts from theistic traditions and think, is that not what they're doing? Um, uh, but it wasn't the whole story, I think. Um, that was sort of Freud's error. He thought it was the whole story, but it wasn't. Um, here's a picture of Donald Winnicott, um, who is a very important British psychotherapist, um, in this country anyway. Um, he worked at Paddington, St Mary's Paddington, not far from here. And he, he took Freud's ideas and said, look, it can't all be projection. Um, because if it's just all projection, if it's just my fantasies that I'm experiencing when I think I'm experiencing the real world, we'd never have a sense of connection. We'd never have a sense of groundedness. We'd never have a sense of really meeting another person. Um, we'd all be, as it were, a bit psychotic all the time. Um, so what Winnicott argued is that um, our projections do go out of us um, but sometimes they land and they're true. And when we have an experience of that, we feel we have connected, we feel grounded. And so for Winnicott, um, psychotherapy, it can be many things, but partly what it is, um, is a becoming familiar with your own projections in order that then you can discern um, the projections which speak of reality back to you. Um, it's, it's a sort of parallel um, uh, experience to the Socratic moment. Um, you know, you've got to, as it were be able to tolerate that space of not knowing in psychotherapy um, and that can you know often be um, a very key part of a psychotherapeutic experience uh, realizing that you don't know as much as you thought you did um, and it can be very unsettling and you ask as it were your therapist to kind of hold that possibility for you during that time um, but nonetheless on the other side of it um, lies um, a sense of the world beyond you um, because you've got over yourself. Um, narcissism, by the way, in psychotherapy doesn't mean loving yourself. It means the struggle to love yourself enough to get over yourself and see that there's more than just yourself. Um, you know, the, the, someone with a narcissistic personality disorder constantly tries to prop up their sense of themselves. Um, 
and uh, it's a, you know, it, it makes them grandiose um, because they're constantly trying to fight an inner fragility. Um, but most of us, um, to use a Winnicottian expression, have a good enough sense of ourselves so that most of the time we're kind of comfortable with ourselves and can do this other work like working for our projections and regaining a sense both of myself, I know myself better after a, um, a process of psychotherapy, but also know my connection with the world better too. So it's a reciprocal sense of participation. Um, and then Carl Jung um, came to listen to Winnicott. Um, uh, I think a lot of Winnicottian ideas are quite like Jungian ideas. Um, but he is known now for sort of taking it a, ne a step further and arguing um, that it's not just our own inner lives that we're negotiating when we have some psychotherapy, but actually the inner life of the cosmos again. Um, that we're uh, encountering archetypes that have become partly our own, but also are more than just our own. Um, they're part of the collective and they're part of the groups in which we live, um, you know, whether we be um, a student, um, there's a whole sort of collection of archetypes at that time of life, you might say. Um, cultures have their own gatherings of archetypes, and maybe they're even universal archetypes. Um, and a bit like the medieval uh, mystic would have experienced life, a bit like in Dante's Divine Comedy, traversing the cosmos um, and different spheres, um, discovering different angels, different saints, and so on in, in different spheres. So um, Jung's idea, a sort of broad parallel there would be that um, psychotherapy is about traversing our inner cosmos and realising that we're actually then traversing the inside of the whole world too. Um, probably quite a long way down the line. It doesn't happen quickly. Uh, but nonetheless, this is sort of the promise, a new promise of union. Now, I think I'm going to actually draw to a close there because I do want to give some time for questions. Um, there is, uh, on the handout, you'll find some other ideas about virtues, for example, which are kind of personal qualities which we can cultivate that enable us to respond to what's happening in life. And I, I think this is very different from morality. Morality is very much about the right thing to do in a certain kind of scenario. We tend to talk about morality um, in the modern world, and I'm very much for trying to think about things in terms of virtues again kind of characteristics, qualities of what it is to be a person um, that give us this flexibility to move across different experiences of life. You know, so humili humility, for example, um, isn't about always putting yourself in the last place, a sort of vague sense of self-abnegation when it's celebrated as a moral quality. Um, it's rather about, um, and a nice analogy I, I heard someone once say is it's, it's rather like being the sea, being the humble person. And the sea is in the lowest place because everything can flow into it. Um, and that actually makes it the greatest body of water, as it were, on the planet. Um, and so genuinely humble people, I think, don't, as it were, feign um, a kind of diminu diminution of themselves. But actually, they're great-souled individuals. And you feel that they're channeling something. They're, um, they're conveying something that's much bigger than themselves. And that's what their humility allows them to do. So I'm very much in favour of thinking about virtues uh, rather than the morally right or wrong thing to do. Um, so the, the sheet covers some of that. Um, but... Maybe what we'll do in the last few minutes is just have a time um, of uh, you know, questions, clarifications, points. Um, begin a process of digestion, um, hoping that when you thought about original participation, alienation, reciprocal partition at the beginning, you've got a bit more of a sense of what it might mean to traverse these different stages in the evolution of consciousness. So any thoughts or comments or questions? And I guess there'll be a microphone coming around. Yeah, we've still got one hand here and then one hand here straight away. Thank you, that was really helpful. I'm particularly interested in the evolution of civilization and bringing in the evolution of consciousness, which is particularly helpful. Uh, we've just listened to uh, a lecture or talk on mindfulness, 
And I get a sense, having worked with the principles of mindfulness from the various traditions of Taoism and Buddhism and various others, that rather than being centered in those traditions, it's, it seems to be a natural evolution, mindfulness, of consciousness. Would you comment? Yeah, I agree. I broadly think that what's happened, my sort of story about what mindfulness is about, um, uh, is that um, it's become so big in the West because of behaviorism, essentially. That, you know, um, there was a very powerful movement in the middle of the 20th century which told us you shouldn't worry about your inner life. Um, and it's rats in mazes, that kind of thing that counts. Um, and uh, this led to um, uh, a sense of, uh, you know, uh, emptying out of inner life. And so the time was ripe for these chaps who'd been in India to come back um, and tell us all about it once again. But it's certainly an ancient tradition. You know, the, the Stoics kept silence. The leaders of Plato's academy uh, remember keeping silence. The phrase navel-gazing um, as a sort of, uh, you know, you're, you're sitting around just staring at your navel all day long. That's actually, that was a, a term of abuse um, used against early Christians and particularly the, the mothers and fathers who went into the Egyptian desert and they were, they were accused of navel-gazing. Um, so, it, you know, it, I think it's just a common thing that probably exists across all traditions, in fact, but it's being remade for us and that's really important because the particular always matters. You've got to remake it for your time and place so you don't lose this sense of individuality. Um, so it's not a trivial task, what's happening um, with the mindfulness movement, I don't think. Because Taoism particularly seems to take a, a strong view in that of being non-attached to anything in particular that's rising above it. Yes, it's still acknowledging our individuality at the same time. Yeah. It's usually paradoxical in that sense. Yeah, yeah, it's an art and it, it's gained by making mistakes and so on. Yeah, there's a question at the back there. Very good question. Um, uh, I, I perhaps should just say that many historians don't talk about history in this way anymore. In fact, Mary Beard, who I put up on the, on the wall there, she, I, she hates, it's sort of called historicism, she hates all that. And if you saw her civilizations programs on the telly, she deliberately talked about a core um, without referring to this history of consciousness kind of stuff. She didn't, she didn't say damn history of evolution of consciousness, but I, I suspect that was kind of in the back of her mind. But nonetheless, the people that do talk about it in this way, different theories and ideas. Um, uh, one that I quite like, actually, is, is uh, to do with writing, um, that writing existed for quite a long time, before the middle of the first millennium BCE, but it was about this time that things started to get written down beyond just bureaucratic stuff. Um, you know, so cuneiforms full of... Um, how many wheat bales you know, you've got to pay taxes on and stuff like that. Um, but Homer, for example, was an oral um, poem. Um, poems we got, get, starts to get written down about the 6th century BCE. And what happens when you write down um, is that um, a gap opens up between you and the words. You, know, you haven't learned it by heart. It's not coming out flowing from within you and the, 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 sort of the bardic tradition of which you as the poet are part of. And the words have a kind of life of their own. You can not read a text for decades, centuries even, and then pick it up. And then comes the struggle to make the words live again. Um, uh, you've got to, as it were, uh, discover what they mean, discover their life, work out how it connects with you. So it creates a very different experience of what it is to gauge with a literary tradition when words are written down. Um, so I, I, I think there are other factors, but that, I think that must be part of it at least, yes. Uh, 
You certainly see that in the Hebrew tradition. You know, the, the, the Hebrew Bible starts to get written down about this time in the post-exilic period. Um, and uh, the Deuteronomists, uh, in particular, um, major on this ingathering of the self. It's when monotheism really starts to get going in the Jewish tradition, because you've got the sense of gathered unity that can then even perceive that there might be a unity to all things um, mirrored in your own soul, in the depths of your own soul. Did you say what the last bit again? I, I missed what you said. Oh, right, okay, yes. Right, and I was wondering what were your thoughts about it, if there was any correlation with uh, that. Yeah, so the penal gland, if you're, what, where Descartes thought that the minds might meet the matter. Um, I mean, poor old Descartes gets such a bad write up. He actually thought there was a kind of unitive substance that contained both mind and matter, but this is often forgot. Again, he's a bit of a. He suffers because he's such a good writer. I think, therefore, I am is such a good phrase that everyone doesn't bother to read the rest. Um, and he speculates in one text that maybe the pineal gland has something to do with it. I don't think he thought that he'd proven anything there or not. Um, but uh, maybe he was a bit like an early neuroscientist that thought they got the spot. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, so it's an idea. Um, but I don't think uh, um, it, 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 it stands and falls. It's, kind of way, it's, a, it's a way of contemplating the problem as much as it's a solution to the problem, you might say. Put it like that. Hi. Um, at one point, you briefly alluded to the idea that perhaps mindfulness itself isn't enough and it uh, isn't uh, embedded into something else, whereas uh, uh, religious thought and belief potentially is uh, an answer to that. I wonder if you might be able to develop that. Yeah, so it's a great problem. Um, you know, I work at the Morsi Hospital and um, uh, uh, people are actually very nervous about introducing religious ideas uh, in a therapeutic session or something that might be conceived of in that way um, uh, because people get sued and, you know, there's big culture wars around these things. Um, but I, I do wonder whether um, part of the reason why we see these kind of rises and falls um, in these broadly contemplative therapies. You know, so CBT, um, as we were told earlier on, had this kind of big sort of moment. And now there's plenty of studies coming out saying it's short-term. And that's actually quite good for psychotherapists like me because people that have CBT then get passed on to us. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I, and I, do, I just wonder whether um, that um, what we're not sure is, if, is, is of our ground and that CBT can help. And don't get me wrong, I really think CBT can help. Um, but the intervention is probably going to be short-lived um, because... Um, you know, we're not just, as it were, isolated monads um, that can more or less hold life together for ourselves. Especially if we're interested in life, we want to expand into something more and know about relating to that. Um, so that, that would be my sort of sense um, that, there's a, that part of the crisis of our age is uh, seen in these kind of cognitive therapies. Um, and I, I reckon the same thing might happen with mindfulness um, uh, until... Um, we re regain a, a different sense of reciprocal par participation and it becomes much more culturally acceptable to talk about these things again. I think you see it in various areas. You know, I've noticed myself just in the last five or ten years that um, someone mentioned precognitive dreams earlier on. Um, I reckon about five years ago, you might not have even dared ask a question like that. And if it had been asked, the, the respondent wouldn't have said, well, you know, the evidence is out at the moment. Um, things are changing quite dramatically, I think. Um, so it's quite a good time to live. I, I, I look particularly to sci-fi. I'm quite a consumer of sci-fi. and I, know I love that film, Arrival, 
um, that came out a year or so back, um, where by learning a different language, um, the scientists discovered a different kind of consciousness, a different experience of time. Um, you know, this, these things are around in our culture more and more. about the new age uh, consciousness that's sort of around, obviously very strongly at the moment, and things such as, for example, you do have synchronicities here with paranormal experiences, things of that nature, and the, and the, and the kind of return of the magical at some level. Yeah. Um, something I didn't really get onto. It, the, the person I think writes really interestingly about this is a psychologist called Jeffrey Kripal, with a K. Jeffrey Kripal, and he has quite a lot of stuff online and talks and so on. And broadly speaking, his understanding is that um, paranormal experiences and uh, of various kinds um, are, as it were, um, reality breaking back in. Um, we've rather lost the ability to relate to um, the wider sense of things, um, become individualistic, and you know when the New Age is accused of being narcissistic in the pejorative sense. You know that's broadly speaking what's going on, um, but. Unless you do the work on yourself, what breaks back in gets mangled with your own projections and fears and anxieties and so on. Um, and so there's a kind of cultural history you can tell about, say, UFOs. I personally don't think that ET is visiting. I think it's some sort of collective way of trying to interpret the sense there's more to life than just our own, uh, you know, knocking about in our own brains. Um, and uh, and people like Jeffrey Kripal have written about this, and it's a it's a reflexive. Uh, experience that requires a lot of undertaking, uh, a lot of untangling and understanding. Um, yeah. Why, why, would, why would it be otherwise? You know, we're talking about um, the gap, um, you know, between what's me and not me. So it's going to be, as it were, coloured by who I am. You want that. You want to be an individual, um, as well as relating to the wider world. Should we move on and just have a couple more questions? I'd be very interested to know your thoughts on artificial intelligence and like, the next stages of Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. Well, to cut to the chase, big subject, um, and I'm only a sort of punter here. Um, I, you know, read the papers like you. But um, my sense is that if AI has shown anything, and I think this has started to become the new narrative around AI, um, is that we're not an, we're not um, algorithms. Um, you know, there's been big effort over quite a long time now um, to produce artificial intelligence like our own, um, and it basically fails. Um, and now what people are saying is that maybe what we're on to is creating a different kind of intelligence that with luck we can put into the service of ourselves. Um, so that, broadly speaking, I think is a new kind of narrative around AI. Um, I also buy the further argument, which is made by people like Jaron Lanier, um, the, the chap who coined the phrase virtual reality, so he knows about this. Um, and he says the great risk around AI now is that we forget that we're, we have human intelligence with, for want of a better word, all this kind of spiritual potential. Um, and we just, as it were, collapse our lives into the intelligence of the machine. Um, so he writes very well about Facebook and how it limits our consciousness because basically all you can do is like or not like. Um, so, you know, his latest book is about coming off social media um, and realising the whole world kind of opens up again before you. Um, so I think that both um, AI won't deliver consciousness like um, human consciousness. I personally don't think it will be machines will ever wake up at all. They'll just get more and more sophisticated at imitating various kinds of intelligence. Um, but the, the greater risk really is that we forget um, our own potential um, because we become so immersed in the machine. And the machine is that within which we live and move and have our being. 
um, to use the Stoic phrase, um, rather than the divine logos. Um, Should we have... <laughs> beg your pardon, yeah. Could I, yeah, just two questions. Go, go, go for one, because we've only got another minute. Afterlife. Yeah. Who did it? Oh, that's Gustave Doré, D-O-R-E, with a okay. circumflex. Uh, no time for the other one. Okay. Doré is fantastic. Uh, if you're interested, he, he, he got this. And there was one more question here, and then maybe that would be about, about it. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid that this is going to end on a low point. Um, but <laughs> uh, I do believe in, I do think that we have to go through these periods of bewilderment and disorientation and not knowing and uncertainty. And uh, the ancient Greek way of putting it was periods of tragedy. Um, and I suspect that's the way it's going for us. Um, and that maybe something on the other side, um, a new form of life might emerge for us collectively. Um, someone mentioned civilizations, their rises and falls. I do buy the kind of Gebser, Oswald Spengler, people write about it in this way. I think that there's a lot of sense in that. Um, and so our task now is, it were, to be in the vanguard. Here's a not beat moment to end. To be in the vanguard of the evolution of consciousness and uh, you know, doing the work on ourselves. So, because at the end of the day, you know, what counts is not that I can try and persuade you by logical argument. Um, that there's more to life than just what's going on inside my own brain. What really persuades you is when you meet someone who's living this, and then you think, I want that too. Um, you feel it. Um, and so, um, you know, engaging with life in that way, I think, is, in the longer term, um, is going to be much more beneficial. Um, I don't think there will be an awakening. Um, I don't think we're on the cusp of an awakening anytime soon as a collective, as a society, but nonetheless... Um, you meet people who you do feel are awakened and they encourage you and draw you forward. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, we'll draw to a close there. If you like my little book, if you want a bit more immediately, go do get the book. Have a look at the handout as well and there's some poetry and so on in there which I hope uh, might make some more sense. But thank you very much indeed for your comments as well. Thank you. Hey guys, Niall here again. Just one more quick thing before you go. If you're interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, don't forget to go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast and enter your email to sign up. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show.